welcome to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that always negotiates to get the absolute most for our literary hot takes. Today's episode is absolutely free, of course. We are master negotiators, Amanda. Yep. Do you think we could have bargained <laughs> up for a couple more dollars? Oh, man, I would hope so. If, if my mom were doing it, then yeah. Mm-hmm. She's got the gumption then, huh? She has the true grit of haggling. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's. I think, I don't know if that's an age thing, a generations thing, a culture thing, but I do not have it, or just a genetic personality thing, but I do not have the true grit of haggling. It might be a cultural thing, too, because in Korea, they still, you still get to haggle and stuff on the, in the shops. Yeah, yeah, that is something I'm completely unaccustomed to. Even at, what would the closest American kind of common counterpoint to that be? Maybe a farmer's market, but I feel like there still isn't a lot of haggling there. Car, car dealership, I think. Oh, the... that's so true. Though I think, oh, well, let's not get too off <laughs> off track right away, though I do enjoy it. <laughs> but I do feel like online car buying is going to kill that, too. Oh, yeah, that's true. Because mm-hmm. that whole... Old... Unless you're, like, selling your car by yourself. Yeah, yeah. But even then, it's there's Kelly Blue Book, which kind of eliminates the... That, that to a degree, eliminates the randomness to it. Anyway, yeah. if you have no clue why we've been talking about this selling and negotiating tangent, that is because you've stumbled upon a book club episode on the novel True Grit by the author Charles Portis. Today, we'll be doing an analysis of the first half of that book, which we'll get to in a second. We do have social media accounts. Our podcast is, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at that title, just one word the lightly literary podcast so like and subscribe to whatever social platform you found us on or perhaps a podcast platform we're on spotify apple most of the major podcast carriers at this point share us with your friends tell friends and family about us we make a great and free holiday gift it's the holiday season (laughs) at least when we're recording this actually when this comes out it's probably well past the holiday season but that's okay (laughs) like january february (laughs) a gift for any season you know it's always relevant (laughs) books are always in the uh in the forefront of the culture so Mm -hmm. today as i mentioned a book club episode on the novel True Grit by Charles Portis. I chose this one, Amanda. What was the prompt you set me up with? Um, I chose a prompt that said, a book with a female lead written by a male author. Yeah, this one gave me some fits and starts too, which is, (laughs) I don't know. I have been on the subreddit called Men Writing Women often enough to know that there can be some real awkwardness and discomfort in that translation. (laughs) So in one sense, I'm like, well... Maybe men just should stay away, you know, and, and write the right <laughs> characters they know and, you know, do their best and perhaps not bring them to the fore. And then, of course, in the most basic human sense, it's like, well, that's absurd. Obviously, you should try and write from a myriad of perspectives and understand all kinds of things. Anyway, this gave me actual trouble to find something that one, you know, we're always in the background trying to tune our books and balance the book club and not repeat ourselves with topic and theme. So when I stumbled upon this, even though I have seen the movie, never read the book, and I did like the movie, it's a Coen Brothers film from, I don't know, a decade ago or so, I did want to revisit the book, and then also I knew it would be a bit humorous. We haven't done a ton of humor, obviously we, we've yeah. tried. <laughs> the Trevor Noah <laughs> book was an unsuccessful experiment for us, I think, in some ways. Yeah. So if you haven't listened to those episodes, they're in the feed and we'll stay there. Anyway, and I knew this would be kind of humorous, that's its reputation. It's also a Western, which we have not dared upon at all. Uh, Gunslinger was kind of, but it's like a mm-hmm. sci-fi western, totally ish. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So this is the first yeah. true to history. Well, you know, 
yeah. an interpretation of history anyway, Western that we've attempted. So I th- it hit a couple of those notes, and it was a great prompt. And I th- there were a few others in play, but it was um, it's su- surprisingly slim pickings. It's a lot of famous um, female characters, women that men write aren't the lead. That was the trouble. It was like I could have mm-hmm. I found a bunch where it was like there's really compelling women, of course, as there should be in uh, you know nearly any story. But of yeah, the lead thing or written in the voice of all that stuff, lead character that was trickier, but. Uh, so far, this has been a very satisfactory reading, so I'm pleased. Yeah. Excellent. Good. Yeah, I've enjoyed it as well so far. So Yeah, definitely, and it's pretty breezy, too. Before we mm-hmm. jump into the segments, uh, just a quick warning. Book club episodes, as you've stumbled upon, are spoiler-filled, but we do split them in half, so today is part one. Next week, we'll post part two of this book. We always split the books as close to directly in half as we can. This one splits pretty cleanly in half. However, there's no chapter titles or anything, so a quick description... We have read up until the part when three main characters cross a ferry. <laughs> and that's about as vague as I can be without spoiling stuff. <laughs> yep. So if you're spoiler reverse <laughs> or if you haven't read yet, you know, feel free to press pause and come back later. But that's what we read to. It should be almost halfway through the book. And it's three major characters have just crossed a ferry and a little, a couple other things happened. But that's basically where we're at. So anyway, shall we dive in, Amanda? Yeah. Let's get into it. We'll start with fill in the blanks. This is where we always start our book club episodes, just with a little slight prompt, fill in the blank prompt to get conversation going. Do you want to throw one out there first, or did you just did you go with the ones I put today? I just did yours. Yeah, excellent. No, yeah, no, no worries. <laughs> go ahead and pick one to start with. Then either is fine. Yeah, I'll go with the one that like I couldn't think of anything for was uh, the most elaborate plan I've enacted for revenge was blank. Yeah, and I've never actually done anything for revenge because. When I, I'm just really good at holding grudges, like, I mean, I don't think anybody can hold a grudge like I do, but, um, <laughs> but, but because you never do anything about it, doesn't that mean you're terrible at holding grudges then? <laughs> I just, I guess the way that my revenge is, I just like, if I see that person, then I am extremely rude to them or I, Uh, straight up ignore them and act like I don't see them and stuff but excellent my I tend to if something gets to me in that way immediately immediately I react so I've definitely like chased people down the street threatening to tear them apart and I've definitely like pushed people and stuff but at what ages um, (laughs) (laughs) just read this year Uh, COVID is this a COVID quarantine effect or something the chasing around was like teenage years i want to say like 16 and then the pushing stuff was uh in my 20s but like <laughs> yeah drunken bar fights a lot <laughs> i was gonna say as amanda's well known for you know going off the handle and having bar brawls or whatever <laughs> i was way more aggressive in my youth than now so. yeah me too me too <laughs> I think I, I also couldn't think of anything for the revenge one, but I did think it was a honest and sort of interesting prompt just given my... I, the closest I could come is when I played contact sports, you create mini revenge narratives during the game. You know, if you get hit mm. in football by somebody, you think, I have to hit that person at some point in this game. <laughs> you know, there's these yeah. little moments of you enact little petty revenges kind of throughout that. And even playing a non-contact sport like tennis, I, I don't know if it's revenge though, but you are plotting constantly to overtake them or you know if they do something that annoys you you try and think of ways to get back or counter it so that was the most relevant examples i could think of i don't know i i try not to 
build up long standing, long stake revenge things. I'm not above holding grudges or anything. I'm not some perfect yeah. emotional, <laughs> far from me, far be it for me to say, yeah, in some perfect emotional state. But I just, right. I don't think I have the gumption, as I mentioned earlier, to, to go through with things. I'd rather just kind of let it fizzle and think a couple thoughts and then just, I guess, let it go. So yeah, I couldn't think of a great one for this either. The sports thing is what came to mind, where I've d- immediately felt like I really want to do something to that person, and now I'm going to try and make that happen. <laughs> yeah, my I remember my brother, um, he used to play uh, football, and one time um, when he caught the ball, the opposing team, like the guy got him, um, tackled him, and then dragged his mask purposefully yeah. like through the mugs, mud, so trying to get my brother to like eat mud. Mm-hmm. A penalty, so, to be sure. Yeah, um, which they didn't call. And yeah. so my brother waited until that guy caught the ball, and then he drop kicked him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Re- revenge, a dish best served with the foot, as, the, yeah. as of course the ancient wisdom tells us. And according to you, a dish best served, not at all. A, a dish best withheld and kept in the kitchen. Um, exactly. How about for the other fill in the blank? Uh, the last time I had to haggle for something was um, when I bought um, a brand new car when I first got back from Korea. Yeah, me too. Um and I took my mom with me and it was like, this was in 2010 and I was buying a 2011 Hyundai Accent. And my mom, I was like kind of haggling, but like my mom just took over and it was like so intense. Like she, she saved me thousands of dollars and I had like no credit because I had just moved back from Korea mm-hmm, and she got yeah. my car payments down to like a hundred dollars a month. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. And yeah, that's yeah, impressive. Yeah, she saved me so much money. And, like, at the end of it, the guy, the the car dealer, he was, like, red in the face from being so exasperated by my mom. Yeah. But my mom was like, yeah, you, you better give her the best deal. <laughs> like, it was crazy. I just, there's a certain, uh, in my mind, haggling is sort of like tipping, where I mm-hmm. just think, can't we create a more robust and even-handed economy so this isn't necessary anymore i just don't i don't know why these things have to be dependent now i guess in a you could take a broad view of this and just say well all business fundamentally is about strategy and a little bit of luck and then of course like skill and negotiation and yada yada so it's i don't think it's ever going to go away or something but it's doing it for like every day for example if i had to haggle every day for food prices or something that would just drive me insane i i couldn't I don't. I guess I don't mind if there's. It's an occasional thing. I think the car dealership thing is. It always feels very scummy to me. Like I just don't know why this is necessary. I'm not sure who benefits from this. That's what I guess. That's what I where I come in in it. Where I think, who do, who does this help? Like why do, why do we have a system like this and who's benefiting from it? And I suppose the answer would be usually the salespeople. You know, they deserve yeah. to make a living. I agree on that. But I just, it's like surely we could come up with a slightly more equitable, less conflict-based system. Like, why? Why is the well, system based around conflict and discomfort? I, I don't know. <laughs> it's the same thing with like buying houses. So it's like anything yeah. that's major price tag is going to be where you want to haggle the most. I guess that's why that still exists. Like yeah. in America, it's, you don't really haggle for anything unless like maybe you're in the black market and buying your 
your gooky bag instead of your Gucci bag, you know? <laughs> like- uh-huh. Oh, yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> Part of me, too, and I see this in board games when, when um, well, we've played a good number of board games together over time, and yeah. but just in general, if board games have mechanics like this, I really don't, I don't like them. And I, mm-hmm. usually what I do is just kind of break the game by, you know, if, if I had to haggle for a car in this way, and they're like, okay, we'll offer you 12, I may as well, why don't I just say, I'll pay you a dollar and let's just keep, I'll just go up by a dollar. No, $2. And then, like, I don't, I get that that's a bad faith interpretation and a bad faith argument, but the whole system feels like bad faith to me. The whole thing is premised on bad faith, so why don't I just go to the most rotten faith and go from the most rotten position and then you force you to, like, drag me out of it or what? That's just my where my brain goes, where I'm like, well, if we can't even think of a better starting place, then, like, we have to outwit each other for some weird reason here, then I'm just going to do the worst possible thing and be annoying about it, which I, I don't even think I have the, like, courage to uphold that. I, I It's not like I would actually do that, but that's where my brain goes. I'm like, this whole system is so stupid. Why am I even... Why do I even want to engage with this then? You know? Yeah. So that's kind of where my head goes with it. But I, I think my mom helped me. She was there when I bought my car. And that was that's my fill in the blank too for this. Last time I had to haggle for something was when I bought my car. And she helped a bit for sure. She pointed out a couple of, I don't know, strategies they were trying to do or to pressure me. But the funny thing was it was I it was clearly the car I wanted. I did test drove other cars and anyway, so it wasn't like I had much of a position to bargain from. I suppose what I should have done, right, is lied and said, I really don't want it and you know, you have to do that lying back and forth and all that. Right, right. It's the my mom's tactic was not to lie. But we did shop around. I knew which car I wanted, and I was looking at all the same mm-hmm. cars in each of the lots. And she brought the lowest, got the lowest price, and then she went to the the next lowest price and told them, and was like, "You need to do better." And then like was like, "Hey, our family has bought a car from you before." Like just all the everything that she could throw at him, she did. <laughs> and it, yeah, and it was very effective. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Social manipulation based on lies mm-hmm. and other psychological exploits, very effective. <laughs> yeah. And uh, built into some, still built into some things, that's for sure. And let's get into the actual text, shall we? Although I think that's a good enough summary or setup to the book because our main character, is it Maddie or Ma- Manny? Maddie. Maddie, there we go. She is a master negotiator. Of course, her, the whole thing is that she kind of has a family lawyer that she relies on often to back up her arguments and strike fear into the hearts of business people. So that's, I don't have that. And maybe I should just include that in my repertoire of lies. Anyway, let's move now to the (laughs) next segment of this uh, book club, which is surprises, pleasant or otherwise. We've each pulled some things that have surprised us about the book so far. And as I mentioned, I had seen the movie. So the surprises for me are through that lens. Had you seen the movie before? I have not. Uh, okay. And I know that there's a John Wayne version and the Coen Brothers version, and mm-hmm. I've not seen either one. Gotcha. I saw the Coen Brothers version. I, f- I follow and watch most of their movies. So that's the one I'm familiar yeah. with. And I do not watch old westerns, so I had not seen the older, the John Wayne one that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so how about a surprise for you so far? Um, I only put one, but my my big surprise was just how um, there's a lot of historical and biblical references in this. This is like, I mean, the the Westerns that I've read before, I think I've read one like Louis L'Amour novel. And then like there was like Gunslinger. So I've like read some Western adjacent. I've seen a lot of spaghetti Westerns, but that's not something where they include a whole lot of like discussion about the the political climate or like even the mm-hmm. 
yeah. the social climate really, aside from like a lot of like racist tropes <laughs> about mm-hmm. Native Americans mm-hmm. and the black community. Um, but uh, in this one, there was a lot of references to like particular politicians of the time. Like there's, uh, she mentions Woodrow Wilson. She also mentions Al Smith, who was um, a, was he a governor of New York or something like that? Um, she mm-hmm. talks a lot about, um, the Bible and actually like throws a biblical verse in there at one oh, point because yeah. she's yeah. like super um, religious. Um, she's got guy fearing young lass, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, anti prohibition. So she also talks about, or she is pro prohibition rather. Right. And she yeah. talks about, um, and she knows the laws too. She mentions two different laws that have been enacted. Um. Anyway, so I was just like really surprised by by how how many allusions there are to the actual like historical context of the time that that this is set in and i was just blown away by that i I really am enjoying it though i've I've done Mm -hmm. uh like every time i see it i'm like oh i should look that up and see if this is true and each time it's been true Mm -hmm. (laughs) so yeah and it doesn't get in the way of some of the more enjoyable literary components the characters the dialogue the banter the humor the the things that you know the burns that she's whipping out on uh, and laying down upon everybody she's smiting everyone with burns at all times (laughs) (laughs) so she's i mean it just goes to build her character as as someone who is really intelligent and really aware of of the times that she's living in, which is mm-hmm. surprising for a 14 year old girl. Yeah. I wonder if, I wonder if that by the end is going to feel like a large character sized anachronism or something, but it doesn't so mm-hmm. far. I mean, cause she speaks in the times in the lingo right. and the language of the times. And I, I personally have liked in the, to hop on your surprise. I have liked the most, the interstate, like shit talking basically i don't know, trying to swear too much but, but yeah like them making fun of people from texas defending arkansas ardently and it's just it is funny to read that especially now since texas in america has got this big oversized reputation it's also a big yeah. state it's a very popular state these days a lot of people move there it's got a couple major cities people seem to really like so it's i would say of the southern states texas is by far the most prestigious these days does that make sense i don't know if that's the right word but it's, no, still, yeah, it's like the most interesting or popular or something. And so to mm-hmm. see them just completely berating people from Texas, and I've, I've enjoyed that stuff. I thought it was very funny. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I'll say so far that my surprise is, so it's not that the dialogue is interesting or humorous, and it's definitely both, but it has no narration to it, and it has zero like lead in, lead out. It's very It's cold and neutral on the page, which means he really has to make the characters speak loudly in terms of their tone and content. They have to be very distinct from one another. And so far it's been extremely effective to me, but I could see if you're not at least a little generous in it and you don't, you don't bring a little bit of interpretation to it or kind of a little, put a little sound in your head for some of the characters. I could see it maybe being a little off-putting. It's ra- it's not quite Cormac McCarthy-like because he doesn't even do, mm. like, and he doesn't even do quotation marks or what have you. And his is, yeah. I would say, and his characters speak far less. Like, they don't, they barely speak. <laughs> so it's not, it's not the perfect analogy or comparison, but it does, it does require a little bit of the reader. I just have enjoyed it so much. And again, she is whipping out biblical references and burns and so, things so often that it's kind of, it's her voice at this point is unmistakable if that makes sense yeah mm-hmm yeah. yeah, there's a there's a great line from Cogburn too when he gets introduced. The court scene's a great example of this because obviously there's no there's not going to be narrative interpretation in the courtroom scene. It's a very neutral. It's just a transcription. But he says, um, 
it, he's getting asked about this person he killed. And the lawyer says, it is passing strange. Now, is it not true that on November the 2nd, you appeared before Aaron Wharton and his two sons in a similar menacing manner, which is to say you sprang upon them from cover with that same deadly six-shot revolver in your hand? And Mr. Cogburn, I always try to be ready. Mr. Gordy, the gun was pulled and ready in your hand? Mr. Cogburn, yes, sir. Mr. Gordy, loaded and cocked? Mr. Cogburn, if it ain't loaded and cocked, it will not shoot. Mr. Gordy, just answer my questions if you please. Mr. Cogburn, that one does not make any sense. And then, you know, he goes on and there's a line earlier when he when he says, how many people have you shot? And then he says, shot or killed, which is another great little line. But yeah. if I, I can see a, a person reading this, though, thinking it's a little too neutral. But I go back to remember not to bring it up again, but the Trevor Noah book, we I didn't like some of the way the dialogue was written. My criticism back then was like, well, interject some narration. Give us a little, you know, just a little here and there to lead in and out. It makes the, it brings life to dialogue that might otherwise be flat. This is obviously flat because there's no lead in or out. But the thing that it saves it is that the things the characters say are actually witty or odd or humorous or like, it just reveals character. It has depth to it. It has strangeness, uniqueness, poignancy. And so I think the dialogue has been extremely good so far i've enjoyed the dialogue as well um it's it's surprising because the um when the narrator does use a lead-in it's he said i said he said oh I yeah said. it's that's it yeah. there's no other verbiage being used yeah but yeah. um but that's that's okay because the the dialogue serves an actual purpose when you read that dialogue um and it's not just for like throwing down information but it's for character development as well so we get a really good idea of of each character through their dialogue uh because of what they're saying yeah totally the other surprise these are both pleasant surprises for me the narration has just been very brisk and effective uh it's also the narrative voice narrated in the first person by maddie is quite biting her reflections are humorous and her you know she's a lively i don't know we could throw out so many adjectives for her um right not not punctilious i'm trying to think of a word that's like spunky basically you know she's doesn't take shit and does and gives it plenty and you know isn't gonna Mm -hmm. take anything but There's a reflection on page 15, just as an example of this. She says, some people might say, what business was it of Frank Ross to meddle? It's her father. My answer is this. He was trying to do that short devil a good turn. Cheney was a tenant and Papa felt responsibility. He was his brother's keeper. Does that answer your question? Now the drummers, and then she, she moves into the next part of the story. There's a lot of very quick... This is clearly not an author, or at least this book's narration, where it wants to spend two pages doing a soliloquy about, you know, <laughs> profound mm-hmm. human conditions or what have you. But the issue is still, the, you know, the book still is about pretty significant ideas and things, revenge. Uh, and it manages to convey those things just so crisply and, and kind of briskly. And I think it's been really enjoyable. It, it helps the humor, too. Obviously, it's not a kind of dour book that isn't going to linger. The narrator just would not let it be so. Yeah, and I... I building on that um, example that you just gave, it's, I I found it also interesting that the narrator directly addresses the audience too. Oh yeah. Um, Yeah. And I was just like, the first time I saw that, I was like, Oh, you don't see this very often. So I was, that Mm -hmm. makes me wonder like who the intended audience is. And like, I try to keep that in mind as I read is like, who, who is she talking to? Is it just like, is she writing a memoir? Is it supposed to be like a mm-hmm. memoir or? It know. could be. It could be. I remember when we read The Good Lord Bird, another phenomenally oh, narrated humor, humorous Western sort of novel. 
But that book opens with kind of a frame, but it does the thing that I always find incredibly weak, which is you start a frame on page one and then you write for 350 pages and then you return to it very at the very end. And I'm like, that just either keep the frame throughout and keep returning to it so that I'm aware and I can remember and place things within that. It's a complex device, so I need to be engaged with it throughout. So I just found that to be a meaningless frame, frankly. We talked about that in that episode a long yeah. time ago. It was It's fine. It's not bad, but it also is not going to move me. It's, it needs to be consistent. This is 100% consistent. You know, every five mm-hmm. to ten pages, she's directly trying to s- explain something or giving her adult interpretation of these childhood events. And anyway, so it just works really well. It's consistent is yeah. what I'll say. Excellent. All right, let's move a little deeper into the text and do some motifs that matter. Um, did you have any other surprises? I nope. should have asked. Okay. Motifs that matter. This is where we're going to each pick out some kind of motif, a recurring element of the story. It could be really anything. It's very open-ended. And we'll each explain the motif we chose, why we think it matters so far. Just interesting ideas that are popping out in the book. Why don't you start us off with yours, Amanda? What's your motif? Um, distrust. Mm-hmm. Um, Everyone distrusts everyone and everything in this book, except for Uh Papa, who is murdered because he is too trusting. (laughs) He's a good one. One of the good ones. (laughs) One of the good ones, and he died. Um, Uh So that kind of reinforces the distrust motif, I think, in this this novel so far. So um, there's a lot of examples of of Maddie not trusting, but also the, the people that she interacts with, they also don't trust her. So there's, and and they also don't trust like the systems that are in place, the politics, the politicians, Mm -hmm. um, judicial system, all of it. So, um, some examples, um, from page 31, there's a distrust for someone in a position of authority, especially if that person is a Republican. Um, Maddie really does not care for, she, talk smack about republicans quite often um mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also like makes fun of people who are catholic um she's very protestant and mm-hmm. um i just find that really interesting um but as far as like race and stuff goes she she never has a problem with somebody based on their race it's always their personal beliefs that she she has a, a real issue with but on page um 31 she interacts with um a deputy who um she's trying to find out some information and mm-hmm. yeah. he showed me a list of indicted outlaws that were then on the loose in the Indian territory. And it looked like the delinquent tax like list that they run in the Arkansas Gazette every year in little type. I did not like the looks of that, nor did I care much for the smarty manner of the deputy. He was puffed up by his office. You can expect that out of federal people and to make it worse, this was a Republican gang that cared nothing for the opinion of the good people of Arkansas who are Democrats. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> there's, there's several layers of distrust in this, in this one paragraph where you have, Distrust of Republicans, distrust of people who are not from Arkansas, distrust of people in positions of power, and distrust of people who um, think they are superior in some way. And also just a general distrust of of the mechanics of, of um, the law in that she compares these the list of outlaws to the list of like tax delinquency and like just how much, how many people are like in trouble with the law. And the fact that 
there is such a large list that indicates maybe they're not catching these people too. <laughs> yeah, no, so. it's it's it, the wild west as a expression goes. <laughs> An expression yeah. you know, people as story readers know very well. It's definitely a, it was a whole genre there for a while, but yeah, it's the marshals, you can't trust them all. They operate in a rogue manner, you know. She mm-hmm. certainly hired the one she thinks has the most grit but might not be the most trustworthy or effective or something. So, yeah, that's right. a big trust issue too. Yeah. And um, even when she bargains, like with the haggling, when she's talking to Stonehill mm-hmm. about that, um, they neither one of them trusts the other, which is why right, she has right. to bring in the, the clout of the lawyer. And, and when they're haggling, just like when she haggles with um, Rooster, they want to see the actual money first. They of want course. to see physical proof. So there's a, a distrust of of a person's word, of a person's honor um at that time which is funny because um in a lot of westerns it's actually very romanticized where it's like the cowboy's word is like gold right but right, in, in right. this book it's like nope <laughs> yeah. me that money <laughs> well, I, there's there's a long exchange maybe i don't want to step on your toes but i mean yeah. so maybe you quoted this later but there's a long exchange because the the texas ranger brings a whole new offer and there's a lot more money mm-hmm. a family money a state money and but they have to go through in pretty good detail like how that could all go wrong you know he's like well they don't they don't often pay out or does he have to be alive and so it's yeah at, at many levels it's assurances they all want assurances from each other that these things will be fulfilled right because um at that point maddie had given him the the 25 and he's seen right. that she has money but the promise of more money even though it's like what he would make at least 500 dollars mm-hmm. working with um oh man what's his name LaBeouf yeah LaBeouf um, LaBeouf LaBeouf um, it's Matt Damon <laughs> in the Coen Brothers movie oh <laughs> uh, okay because <laughs> he's, um, he's supposed to be pretty you know that's how he catches Maddie yeah. off guard he's a pretty man right He's a, he's a good-looking man who likes to grin and smirk. He's got um, nice guns. Yep, and giant spurs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't read into that, though. Yeah. <laughs> no symbolism. Giant spurs for a tiny little Texan pony. Uh-huh. That's right. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, the so that's why he trusts Maddie's word, I think, more so than... Um, then LaBeouf's word, LaBeouf's word. Totally. With that. Um, and then, yeah, so on page 43, I have another example of um, of this one, of not trusting the judicial process and the idea of federal interference on the state level. And this is just, I think, Maddie's understanding of it, but also this shows, like, the, the discontent um, with this particular judge um, who is presiding over the case with, with Rooster, where Rooster gets questioned by the, the prosecutor. Mm-hmm. Um, and it says here, uh, now I'll tell you an interesting thing. For a long time, there is no appeal from his court except to the president of the United States. They later changed that, and when the Supreme Court started reversing him, Judge Parker was annoyed. He said those people up in Washington City did not understand the bloody conditions in the territory. He called Solicitor, Solicitor General Whitney who was supposed to be on the judge's side, a pardon broker, and said he knew no more of criminal law than he did of the hieroglyphics of the Great Pyramid. Well, for their part, those people up there said the judge was too hard and high-handed and too long-winded in his jury charges, and they called his court the Parker Slaughterhouse. I don't know who was right. I know 65 of his marshals got killed. They had some mighty tough folks to deal with. Mm-hmm. So there's um, a distrust of like the what's 
what the process is, the judicial process, and also federal interference um, on a state level, but also the idea that those people up there. So there's also that that regional distrust as well, which you had mentioned with like making fun of Texas. Yeah. But there's yeah. also like Arkansas versus Washington D.C. or those right. who are not from Arkansas. So there's also those levels of distrust and, and just distrust of the bureaucracy as well, which she mentions uh, quite a few times. And Rooster gets frustrated with as well with like his paperwork and stuff. And yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I think too this will transition perfectly then into my motif because my nice. motif is justice. It's a j- tale of Perfect. who's going to get justice. And I think <laughs> what you were just saying, it r- transitions into Rooster well, because Rooster is someone who, as the court document transcription shows, and he basically says himself, he thinks justice should be pretty immediate and dealt with the bullet. <laughs> you know, he's a, he's a right. gun justice. And so he, mm-hmm. I think at the end of the trial, he comments and says, well, the he's going to try and get this guy a pardon, a presidential pardon. They're going to go make appeals to him. And he kind of just scoffs at that and says, I should have just killed him when I had the chance because that you know you can't trust those snake eyes or i'm sure he uses some kind of criticism or euphemism or whatever for it but (laughs) yeah that you just can't trust those people and so yeah this segues well into my idea it's so clear from the outset that maddie is hell-bent on justice in her mind justice will be in the form of revenge murder right that's pretty yeah that's pretty clear and on page i think it's 36 there is a quote right away let's see here where she lays out her sense of justice here. Oh, she's talking to her lawyer. And it says, I will take it to the law, said I. You must do as you think best, said he. We will see if a widow and her three small children can get a fair treatment of the courts of this city. You have no case. Lawyer J. Noble Daggett of Dardendale, Arkansas, may make the otherwise. Also a jury. Where is your mother? Oh, she's haggling at this point. Sorry, with the businessman. Sorry. She's not talking to her lawyer. She's haggling. She's at the home in Yell County looking after my sister Victoria and my little brother Frank. You must fetch her then. I do not like to, do not like to deal with children. You will not like it any better when lawyer Daggett gets hold of you. He is a grown man. You are impudent. I do not wish to be sir, but I will not be pushed around when I am in the right. And that final line is the crucial one. She has a clear sense of what must happen now that her father, a just kind man by her account, was, you know, unrightfully killed doing a doing a good helpful deed or whatever honest business and so right from the start when the way she exchanges the way she haggles the way she negotiates it's just clear that her sense of rightness cannot be overturned it'll obviously be very curious and i truly don't remember how the story concludes i remember enjoying the movie but don't remember the plot of it really that if she'll get that sense of justice by the end if she'll be satisfied because it seems like and this comes up later i don't know if i pulled a quote for this but it's one of the great debates between labouf rooster and her is do we have to kill this person? Can we capture him? Where should he face justice? Should it be in Texas, mm-hmm. which she seems to have a low opinion of their systems, judicial, otherwise legal. And, right. you know, they seem to not think it matters. Rooster says, who cares? LaBeouf says as much, too. If he hangs, he hangs. You know, who cares what soil it's on? And so her sense of justice is pretty intense so far. It matches her character. And her, it, it's surprising, too, like her, her sense of justice is definitely goes against some of the laws that obviously uh, she's very knowledgeable knowledgeable about. Like when she talks about her lawyer, she knows exactly the steps that her lawyer will take. And she even mentions the writ of replevin. I don't even know. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, what is that? So yeah. she, she knows um, some technical terms with the law and she's 
she's really smart with that and she knows how to use that to her advantage and to throw it in into to these people's faces so her sense of justice but her knowledge of the law it seems like i don't know they're not always Com- compatible there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it, too. I, yeah. She obviously won't be satisfied until he's dead, but then, you know, she's also wants... Um, she knows now that he's taken up with another criminal, so she needs more mm-hmm. support. The the not welcoming on of LaBeouf seems to be based on... I guess maybe he got snippy with her when they first met, so it could be personality clash and she just doesn't like him. But it does seem, I think, in the text that her major disagreement is that, yeah, he doesn't want to kill him right away or he wants to bring him to Texas. But at the same time, she seems pragmatic enough to know, well, we probably need one more person to do this. And Rooster says as much, too. It's kind of a practical concern, but she is kind of eschewing those practical issues just to, you know, charge ahead with murder revenge. Yeah, she like her initial interaction with LaBeouf was she let her guard down and told him about yeah, hiring right. Rooster, thinking that LaBeouf would help her in that regard. But as soon as he said that he wanted to take um, Cheney, Kelmsford, whatever his name is right now, <laughs> mm-hmm. back to Texas, that's when she got upset because she's like, her whole point is he needs to die because of my father's death. Not because he killed a senator, not because he shot a dog. Right, I want him right. to know exactly what he's dying for. Mm-hmm. And they're like, hey, he'll know. And she's like, no, you guys don't understand. Yeah, <laughs> like, there, was, there was a recent line, 120-ish or something, where Rooster says, I'll hold him in the dirt and you can kick him or something like that. Or I <laughs> yeah, forget the line exactly. The but yeah. So Rooster, you know, his, he's going to keep up with the violent intent, at least. At least he's matching oh, yeah. the same wavelength of violence yeah. as her. You know, he says, <laughs> yeah. yeah, some grim line like that where, yeah, he can, you can torture him in front of me and that's fine and then he'll know well they're also like two different motives right hers is revenge but um labeouf's is just money and he was hired to do it yep rooster like i have the stronger claim to it than you guys do Mm -hmm. totally yeah her morality is quite clear there's a few other times justice comes up on page 53 the lawyer against trying to talk and make a case against cogburn or rooster i'll just call him his justice. He's going on in the to the judge about Cogburn's in, uh, kind of unethical, immoral actions, and it says, Last spring, Cogburn shot and killed Aaron Wharton's oldest son, and on November 2nd, he fairly leaped at the chance to massacre the rest of the family. I will prove that. This assassin, Cogburn, has too long been clothed with the authority of an honorable court. The only way I can prove my client's innocence is by bringing out these facts of these two related shootings together with a searching review of Cogburn's methods. And then he gets interrupted. He also, the judge in a funny way says your honor i think the council should be advised that the marshal is not the defendant in this action because it's it's like he's it's as if rooster is on trial uh though he's not meant to be he's just there to be a witness for this uh arrest so anyway i thought that line was pretty funny but yeah rooster apparently is such a murderous kind of vile marshal that he's using legitimate legal protections to get away with these things which yeah it's interesting because he's he's kind of a humorous guy so far kind of a goof kind of a drunkard not really the most intimidating or impressive figure he does come at maddie with violence in that one scene when she's making fun Mm -hmm. of him but he doesn't he he, i think he does he threaten to hit her and then he doesn't yeah she well she 
he gets up out of the bed to come at her and she grabs his paperwork that he had oh, to submit. Yes. <laughs> and she like threatens to burn yep, it. Yep, threatening the and money. And that's when he like backs down, yeah. <laughs> totally. And and obviously the most recent scene was the the Texas does switch her, hit her with a switch and is beating her to, you know, yeah. deter her, get her off the t- chase. And he defends her at that point. So that he does have a notion in his mind somewhere that he does not like violence done to this child. And he right. I think maybe has a slight he slightly favors her gumption and sort of her, well, I guess her grit, right? <laughs> As it yeah. turns out, the yeah. title you think refers to Rooster, who she wants to hire, but it's, you know, it's likely to be her grit her. all along. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as much as For clear. Sure. <laughs> yeah, but the courts make an interesting kind of counterpoint to justice in this so far. It's, so far, we'll see how it goes, but given the lens we get with Maddie, I think the view of the courts is that they're a little naive and a little too nice, and they don't maybe have a real sense of the kind of brutality of the West or something, but I, who yeah. knows if that will be overturned? I wouldn't say it's like a harshly critical view, but it seems like there's a lot of skepticism about court justice. For sure. Yeah. The only other quote I pulled for this motif, very briefly, on 79, I believe, I'm flipping to the quote now, it's about when she talks about, oh, yeah, this is it. Um, Labouf talks and says, um, maybe I will throw in with you and your marshal. You'll have to talk to Rooster Cogburn about that. It will be to our mutual advantage. He knows the land and I know Chelmsford. It is at least a two-man job to take him alive. Well, it is nothing to me in one way or the other, except that when we do get Cheney, that he is not going to Texas. He is coming back to Fort Smith and hang. And then LaBeouf, of course, it is not important where it, where he hangs, is it? I know we talked about that conversation, but that's. Mm-hmm. I think that is the most clear conflict of justice so far they have it they have it out you know out loud in the dialogue there about what would be the right thing for this person what's the right fate for this person so yeah just worth bringing that quote up but i think we already discussed it pretty well any other thoughts Mm -hmm. on justice no no. any other thoughts on how to pronounce justice in a fun way (laughs) (laughs) justice justice gonna gonna get my my texas justice (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll see. I have to imagine the back half of this will devolve into some violence. I definitely remember shootouts in the movie, so I, I don't know when. Oh, I'm the, not surprised. Yeah. There's already been some violence. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. So it's yeah, the things will devolve, and we'll see how they land from there. Let's move to a next segment then, which is please continue make it stop. Now that we're halfway through the book, we have a good sense of the style and the writing and the story. So we're each going to pick out something that we wish to continue and compliment, and something that we want to critique and hope does not continue. We both have the same make it stop. So why don't you take it away for that one? Nice. Um, yeah. So I just said the transitions. Sometimes there are just no transitions. And when there are transitions, they're pretty basic. But it doesn't bother me as much um, just because I think that is very purposefully done in order to highlight that this is written by Maddie, who we already know is not going to be a great writer because mm-hmm. uh, she wants... She, submitted to some publishers um a very terrible title um <laughs> let me let me find it yeah real quick. what it's was page that 44 was it... it was oh my god yeah it's, it's i've used it and my memories to write a good historical art article that i titled you will now listen to the sentence of the law otis wharton which is that you will be hanged by the neck until you are dead 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 may god whose laws you have broken <laughs> and before whose dread tribunal you must appear have mercy on your soul being a personal recollection of isaac c parker the famous border judge 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, <laughs> and then she goes on to say the magazines of today do not know a good story when they see one. <laughs> they just yeah. print trash and they don't know what an amazing writer I am uh-huh. and all this stuff. Yeah. Um, so I, I found that input because at first when I was reading it I was like why is it just to showcase like how young she is but then like with that title I was like I see what he's doing (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so that's why it doesn't bother me as much it's just something that I noticed and and coming off of the previous book that we read uh, Burnt Shadows which is like very refined and and really beautifully beautifully stylistically written it's Mm -hmm. just like jarring for me uh, coming into this and and so sometimes as I'm reading, I'm just kind of like, oh, I miss some some of the flowery language, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it is funny to contrast them because this has its flowery moments, but it's all in the dialogue. It's You can yeah. see the, the careful planning, the, the delicate word choice, the funny diction, but it's 99% of it is in the dialogue. Well, maybe that's too high because the narration has been fun. She's got a nice, yeah. lively voice. She's giving out biblical burns at left and right, whatever. It's been fun. But yeah, it's just a totally different approach to making something enjoyable to read. <laughs> it's very, very different. So Yeah. Do you think that because the dialogue is so well done that's why it's it's been remade into movies twice already mm-hmm. and it's been yeah they've both been like you know really apparently well done movies like is is yeah. that the success do you think of the of the novel i think so the too movies? the humor for sure putting some humor in the west but also against the backdrop of something serious so you can have your shootouts I, again i don't remember the plot of the shootouts but there's that you can have your action set piece so to speak and you can also have these kind of goofy foil characters for each other, kind of bantering and everything. I also think the, at least to me, the appeal of the new one, other than Coen Brothers, was that they cast Jeff Bridges as Cogburn, which is just, I just really love Jeff Bridges. So it, yeah, it's a good, doesn't? yeah, it's a good role for an older actor who just kind of wants to be a sassy drunk and kind of just a put upon <laughs> drunkard, I guess, and just kind yeah. of over it all and looking for easy money. So yeah, it has, I can see why it has some appeal as a, kind of that return to it again and again story though yeah i don't think i could suppose any other reasons i also for my make it stop to be clear had the transitions there are more than a few that literally say then this happened or it kind of a paragraph will start with then this happened or then i went to or mm-hmm. it's just all pretty simple it it's odd though because i don't really want it to stop it was just the first criticism that came to mind it keeps things easy flowing would be my compliment and i think that's for the better for the most part it the this has been a very breezy quick read despite like you said some depth some of the political things some of the motifs we've picked up on there's definitely some ideas bouncing around and it's interesting we didn't even talk i should have brought this up in the justice section about the hanging which is probably the most serious scene Mm -hmm. and kind of the most bleak so far and so that would you know i don't want to revisit the motifs or anything but that that's an important moment for justice too because she does not react entirely positively to it she's not right she's kind of a neutral to a little bit of a frightened reaction to it so yeah anyway but yeah the transitions it's whatever is my criticism my sophisticated take i think it's functional for what the story (laughs) is trying to do it just keeps things moving and like you said her voice you've read her lens really well you're more student to that than i have been but it's she is not the best writer and she has got her biases and i think it is just kind of in her simple narration it works yeah yeah so how about for your please continue other than i mean i guess we've we've been pretty effusive praising a lot of things but is there one thing in particular 
yeah, I really like uh, Maddie's character specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just like that she defies the stereotypes that we often see in Western literature. Um, so she is, she's not, in, not just like books, but in, in movies as well. The, the women in, in, in these works are often just like, they, they, they don't have a whole lot of spunk, right? And if they do have a lot of spunk, it's, it's um, contained within the domestic sphere. Um, but Maddie is like the head of the household now and she acts like it and she's very knowledgeable and she's um, out there hanging with adult dudes and like <laughs> mm-hmm. besting them in a lot of ways with yeah. her wit and, and her stubbornness and, and her knowledge. And it's just, it's really great to see that kind of character and it's surprising, but in, in a, in a great way. And what I also yeah. like about Maddie's character and, and the fact that she's the narrator for this is when she portrays people of, of different cultures, aside from, you know, the, the biases of like, not of being either Republican or Catholic or not from Arkansas, as far as like actual race and like the, the outward appearance of people, she's like, really cool with them, like, no matter what, which is also different from a lot of the Western tropes that we see. Yeah. So she, like, has no problem with um, the black community, with with people of color. She has no problem with the Native Americans and the different tribes. The only thing that she really says about, like, the Native Americans that might be, like, negative is that when they, um, when certain tribes mix with, um, uh, either the white community or the black community, like the, some of those, uh, depending on the tribe and depending on like the, the, the race, it's like those mixed people are not always the greatest, but that's her only like kind of. Yeah. She has some, some light apprehensions about it. There is a line when she, when they get across the ferry that she's, I think she says we passed a few, I forget the tribes on the way or in the road. And there is a line in there where she says, I'll admit I had some hesitation crossing them because I, of their reputation. But then it was, they smiled at me and we both continued on our way. It does seem like her sort of, she's the kind of person that just won't pass any judgments until she interacts with the person that she, yeah. maybe you're right though. She does definitely have some perhaps racist presumptions though. Yeah. It's within its context of history. I would be light if it not even, even just non-existent comparatively speaking because it's she just doesn't seem to she really doesn't seem to pay anyone mind unless she has to deal with them (laughs) so it's exactly yeah there is a slight reference in there like you said that one about the i forgot about that quote to be honest the one i could bring to mind was she passes a couple native americans i I think it's some tribe reference but anyway and then she says yeah like i i was nervous but they just smiled and we carried i think her whole perspective is if we just get to carry on our way i don't care (laughs) i just want to carry on my way and get my justice you know my revenge exactly yeah yeah no my very open-minded for that time for sure yeah i think so i think so or at least a neutral force in a story that could otherwise be very much not neutral there there's a line by rooster about the he stays in the back of a shop um from a chinese man's shop right and he Mm -hmm. has a line in there about something about the way the chinese play cards which yeah you can't tell what they're thinking yeah which is either I don't know. I mean, it's certainly a stereotype, so feel free to just file that under automatically racist or something, but it's, I don't know, it doesn't come across as pernicious or evil or something, and I, but, you know, that does, it's racially tinged for sure, if not just, you know, call it what it is. Um, But yeah, not a dominant theme or idea in the book. It it definitely doesn't seem like the book is concerned with those topics in really any Mm -hmm. major way. 
Yeah. One of the during the hanging, one of the people is Native American and seems to respond to just like all the other people getting hanged. You know, they're all exactly. they all have their kind of last words and she doesn't it one of their deaths is not more alarming to her than the others. So it's there's yeah. kind of an equal equal um concern or disturbance to all of that or disturbing nature. My please continue also Maddie related. Just keep the sick burns coming. Don't stop. Just I want the wit. I want her defying all adults at all times. I want her at her most kind of rambunctious and unrestrained uh, throughout the rest of this book. It has been the most probably enjoyable element of it so far. I, I pulled one quote for this from 81, but you could pick a page and probably find one. When she's first arguing with LaBeouf, he says, a saucy manner, or no, this is, I have to get the first burn, and she says, I suppose that is you. Well, if in four months I would not, I could not find Tom Cheney with a mark on his face like banished Kane, I would not undertake to advise others how to do it. And then, so that's great. And then he says, a saucy manner does not go down with me. She says, I will not be bullied. So that's, you know, she's firm. He stood up and said, earlier tonight, I gave some thought to stealing a kiss from you, though you are very young and sick and unattractive to boot. But now I am of a mind to give you five or six good licks with my belt. She says, one would be as unpleasant as the other, which is <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> uh, just incredible. It's really remarkable. I don't... Um, I don't think I'm prepared to or have thought through enough to put this in some, you know, feminist tradition or give it that type of thorough reading. But it is fun to see a genre that is so much and often about women being treated badly and at, and at danger and imperiled and to see her just dishing it left and right. She does. There is that scene where she does get beaten by him and it's a little bit. She doesn't play up the hurt of it that much. It's not, I don't think the novel, again, is going to spend a lot of time narrating intense trauma to us. It's just not the tone of the book. But that scene was a little off-putting, and, and Rooster has to step in. But on the whole, it's just been hilarious to watch her give it as best she can to everybody and not take any shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, a great exchange. She's, yeah, she's great. <laughs> any, any favorite reflections of hers or Burns so far? Now, that one, um, the one that you read, especially the one is more, as just as unpleasant as the other. Yeah. I remember reading that line and just kind of laughing out loud. I was like, nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've <laughs> chuckled more than a few times while reading this, which is rare yeah. for a, such a heavy topic or something. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I have to imagine the narration will not change its tone. It's been extremely firm and consistent so far. So we can look forward to reading the back half. Let's conclude our book club part one with the same kind of tradition we always have for fiction, which is a big, bold prediction. This is when we just talk about what we think will happen in the second half of the book, any hopes we have for it or things that we just can reasonably assume will occur. I guess I'll go first because, as I mentioned, I've seen the movie and you haven't. The segment segment might not work as well because I have seen it, so I... The only thing I remember really vividly is something happens at the end where she falls into someplace with snakes. Very Indiana Jones-esque. Like it's an old mining Ooh. shaft or something or like a cave. That's all I remember. I have a phobia of snakes, so it's, that's why I remember it, I think, so vividly. It's like very <laughs> clear in my mind that this will occur. I don't remember why or if they're fighting or not or if it's rain. I truly don't know. I So my prediction is going to be simpler. I do think that the antagonist they're chasing will die. So I guess he's not, he's just an antagonist in the background so far, but I do think he will die. I'm curious if Maddie will kill him. They make a big deal of pointing out that she's inherited her father's gun, which is a little too big for her. You know, she's, she hasn't growing into the violent justice yet, but maybe by the end she'll be more um, comfortable holding that gun. 
I, so I do think he'll die. I'm not sure how. Uh, I, I don't think the book is going to reward LeBouf. They've just the book has gone out of its way to dunk on him so much so far. So I just mm-hmm. I don't think that will happen. It could be a bittersweet ending where they he's killed, but they they don't get the money or something odd happens and they can't collect or or who knows maybe one of them will die. I very much doubt Maddie will die because she's narrating. So there's that. Right. <laughs> that's you know that's just literary stuff. But yeah, I, I think my main prediction is that he will die, but maybe they won't get rewarded or it'll be with some kind of cost. How about for you? Um, yeah, I, I figured that Maddie will shoot Chaney because like the very first line is people do not give it credence that a 14 year old girl could leave home and go off in the wintertime to avenge her father's blood. But it did not seem so strange then, although mm-hmm. I will say it did not happen every day. So it's like from the beginning, I, I had this idea that she was going to go ahead and, and, and shoot him and probably be the one to kill him. Um, so I wanted to make a different prediction. Um, I wanted, especially with um, Rooster and LaBeouf. So I think in order for Maddie to be able to complete her, um, her revenge, in order for her to be able to shoot um, Cheney Kelmsford. Mm-hmm. Um, Rooster and LaBeouf are, are going to get into it. They're going to get into like some massive fight. There, there's going to be a lot of violence between the two of them. And as a result or as a distraction or something, but in, in that way is, is she going to be able to get what she really wants? Right. Yeah, I could totally see that. That would work well. They've already laid the groundwork for that conflict. We know that they, mm-hmm. both of those men are interested in money and rewards, but clearly the way he was beating her and the way Rooster stepped in, they do have some moral disagreements that are now mm-hmm. in the background, kind of humming in the background. We'll see if that matters, right. if they face some kind of crisis point. Excellent. Any other predictions for the second half? That's the only one I've got so far. <laughs> nice. Yeah, no, fair enough. And it's been a it's been a brisk episode for us, but befitting enough to the story. And it's it is odd though, and we've noted our own trends on this podcast as we continue to do book clubs and talk. We always just have way more to say when the book is not going well. <laughs> That's just a fact. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when things are just humming along and things are going smoothly and reading like this has been enjoyable, easy, and just thoughtful enough to be provoking, um, or pr- mm-hmm. provocative rather. It's yeah, I don't know. I feel like we we talked about it well, but I also just would rather just get back to reading, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's been excellent so far any final thoughts on true grit uh by charles portis thus far nope i'm good okay excellent well we'll check in next week for part two and also we'll well at that point we'll record the recommendation so that should be an easy recommendation to make hopefully the book ends well we do have other books coming up if you're interested in our schedule amanda this is officially now your burden do you want to set them up with the books we have chosen after true grit is done yeah so next we're going to be doing homegoing by yad jesse and her last name is spelled G-Y-A-S-I. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we'll do They Both Die at the End by Adam Silvera. And finally, we'll do Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. Yeah, getting Bradbury in. He's been a guest, yeah. um, a spiritual guest, but not. we haven't literally done his books yet. But I've read a lot of his stuff. Yeah. So. That'll be fine. I've not read that novel before, so and it's Neither one of his I. one of his main. I know Dandelion Wine's a big one, and The Martian Chronicles, but he, he wrote a lot of short fiction and not that many novels. Oh well, and then Fahrenheit obviously is the big one for. Yeah, I think everybody's read that one. I feel like <laughs> in school, yeah, it's such a major story taught in schools. So anyway, yeah, it'll be fun to get him on the podcast. Okay, excellent. Well, 
not much more to say. Let's go make fun of some Texas people. Let's go dunk on some Texans and <laughs> deal out some Arkansas justice of our own. As always, we thanks for uh, thank you for listening. We have social media feeds, as I mentioned, at Facebook and Instagram at the Lightly Literary Podcast. Rate, recommend, follow, do all the kind things online. And until then, we'll see you between the pages. Thank you.